Christian Donlan, what is your favourite game? My favourite game is Robotron 2084. middle of five children and when i was very young my brothers had um they had a vic 20 and then a commodore 64 uh and um i think this is why i love games so much this is probably why i love games more than they did is that they were allowed to play the computer and i had to just sort of sit and watch because I was too young and it wasn't, you know, it was all, technology was so much more complicated and, and not child-friendly in those days. It was all kind of cassette tapes and kind of playing, you know, games took like 10 minutes to load and all these things like that. Um, so, yeah, my first memories of games are actually of um, my brothers playing uh, games like uh, Impossible Mission. Impossible Mission is a really great Commodore 64 game. Um Stuff like that. Those really mysterious games were so mysterious because there was no kind of language around games at that point. There, were, there was no sort of. It felt like there wasn't as much of an established kind of uh, genre framework. So every game was almost felt like they were reinventing. Every game belonged to its own genre back in those days. Um, so that was the first thing. And then I think when I was at school, everyone uh, Sega was very big in our school, so we all had sort of the Sega machines. Um, and then I dropped out a while when I went to university. Um, I completely fell out of touch with gaming and I only got back into it cause I, I started working. Um, I had a temping job with uh, a guy who turned out to be one of my very best friends in the world. And he was just a game lunatic. And all of a sudden, all of this stuff came flooding back. Like, um, you know, he'd talk about Mario, and I was like, oh my god, I remember Super Mario 3. I remember when my sister and I bought Super Mario 3, and it had that yellow box, which is still the greatest game box ever. Um, I don't know if you remember the the, 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 the box to Super Mario 3 with oh, the kind of yeah. in blue, and him in the Tanuki, uh, the text in blue, and the really bright yellow box, him in the Tanuki series. It's the I, best cover I, to a game of all time. I do remember that, yeah. I do yeah, and all of that, sort of, all of that came back, and I started reading Edge, because he used to bring, my friend used to bring Edge into work, and we used to read it on lunch breaks together, like, you know, classic kind of like both of us reading the magazine at the same time. And it just all came back from there. That, so it was, it was really nice to get back into it, and I bought a GameCube and a GBA, and yeah, I was, and then I was, I was back in. I was back in pretty hard from there, and it hasn't changed. Um, how, how long was your break? Oh, gosh. I can remember the last time I played games before um, before the end of... So I probably... I remember playing Tetris on, on the NES. We dusted it off, played Tetris and Super Mario 3 with my, um, with my then-girlfriend in, like, 1996, just before I went to university. Um, I'm old, I should point out. I'm 36 years old. Um, so just before we went to university, we had sort of like, uh, we had like a farewell day. We all played Tetris. My girlfriend at the time used to have, um, she didn't have a games console. She had Tetris on like a Walkman. 
<laughs> oh my god! What? So random. She had like a Tetris, an LED, an L- uh, LCD. Sorry, L- LCD Tetris on like an old on an old tape Walkman. Um, this was like the mid nineties, Johnny, and we, you know, it was a, the past. Really, was a foreign country, and. Um, she used to get this thing called Tetris Head where she'd, you know, she'd come over in the evening after work and she'd just, everything was, was Tetris, you know, everyone, everyone, everyone gets Tetris Head. You know, you're, you're constantly kind of trying to like, like tilt your, your friend's head to the left so you can slot it down between these imaginary blocks and cancel out a line. <laughs> we used to play Tetris and listen to, uh, Max Inke, the tricky album. This is the most, uh, 90s memory in the world. Oh my God. I, on a nez while listening to Tricky and I think so that was 1996 stopped playing games then I went to university at 96 and weirdly enough I ended up sharing a house with someone else who became a games journalist Duncan Harris and he I remember he took an entire term off to play Metal Gear Solid when it came out um, but that was still it was like I'd go into his room and play Worms too. but that was you know I wasn't really a gamer during that period and then I don't think I picked up games again. I went to university and then I went to university again because I'm a loser. And I think I don't think I properly got back into games till 2001. I think we got back into games when the, the GameCube was just coming out. Mm. And it was, that was an insanely exciting time. GameCube and then you had Microsoft were getting in for the first time and like Halo was fucking amazing and just no one had expected it. And um, and the GameCube was just one of the great machines of all time. And the GBA, the Game Boy Advance is so good. Yeah, that's probably one of my favorite uh, eras. Um, but after that, I was, I was back in. I was back in solidly. So there's probably only about like four or five years I missed. I missed, looking back, it feels like I missed PlayStation 1. It, looks like I, it feels like I missed PlayStation 1 and N64. I mean, I've since gone back and played a lot of the, particularly the N64 games, but... A lot of PlayStation stuff I, I have no memory of at the time. Though, weirdly enough, it's PlayStation stuff which is starting to look really good again. Like the aesthetic. You know that retro aesthetic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. Ago, no, not a couple of years ago, but like so 10, 15 years ago, people started to realize that 8-bit and 16-bit looked really good. And now I think people are thinking, God, PlayStation 1, that kind of slightly janky, kind of jaggedy... Um, first drift into 3d where everything looks like paper craft like weird techno paper craft craft that's starting to look really good again but that was the period i missed i was going to say as well um you missed out on um so for context sake um this is the second episode i am recording on a particular day back to back and um uh i had on actually this will be coming after so i can say this i spoke to molly carroll of um chucklefish and um she was talking about this kind of golden era in games, and more specifically, a golden year in games, and what, and, that, and that is seemingly a year that you missed. Um, nineteen ninety eight, which was Metal Gear Solid, um, Half Life, Starcraft, and Ocarina of Time. Yeah, so I definitely, I mean, I watched, um, I would watch Duncan play Metal Gear Solid, and I remember at the time thinking, this is insane. That like, so for this point, I'd been away from games for like two years. And I couldn't believe the fact that he could smoke a cigarette and you could see, like, the puff of smoke come out and that that was a mechanic in the game. It was just the most insane thing. Um, so I did see Metal Gear in, in 1998. And also, 
I remember Duncan would come back from a friend's house. We all shared a house together. He'd come back in the evening and go, I played this game called Half-Life and it's amazing. You you know, you go into work and the, and the, the first level is just you going into work on this tram and like there are these security systems and everything so i think i was always aware you never completely drop out i wasn't seeking these games out or anything like that i think i was more wrapped up in university but um it, i was aware of what was going on i, I was certainly i, I had those, those years have sort of a mystery to me because because i was so removed from it i remember seeing adverts everywhere for a game called the the Devil Inside, which had like a TV on the front cover. And occasionally I wake up in the middle of the night and think, God, what was The Devil Inside actually about? And sort of try and look it up again. But yeah, yeah, no, I did. I, I missed out. I missed out uh, Molly's classic year. That is absolutely true. What is The Devil Inside? It rings a bell, but I... I... No, it, that's, a, that's, a, that's a rabbit hole we don't need to, to go down. Oh, um, oh, I, I, I have a feeling it wasn't very good. Um, yeah. <laughs> I I did. I missed out that period. I have gone back since. Um, and at the time, weirdly enough, I think I remember playing Tomb Raider at the time, um, even though I was... I th- so I must have still had some connection to games because I remember, I remember playing the first and the second Tomb Raider. T- Tomb Raider 2, in particular, is just a brilliant game. I know it's got too much combat in it, but it has the best levels in any Tomb Raider game. But I digress. I digress. After that kind of break, um, you jump back then, which kind of leads into how you got on the industry side of things. Then, do you want? Do you really want? You want this story? Is okay. I will. I'll keep it really brief. No, um, go go for it long. I'm all about long. No, I will keep it really brief. So I went um, when I got out of university. Uh, a friend of mine and I started writing children's television, um, and I don't. I don't know why we did that. I think it's because we thought it was going to be easy because we thought no one else would want to write children's television. So we'll, we'd have this market all to ourselves. I've always wanted to be a a writer. Um, And so we started writing children's television and it was fine. It paid, it paid for me to go back to university again. It was, you know, I had a good, a good time doing it, but I did never meet anyone in television that I, in fact, no, that's a lie. I met one person in television that I liked in like 10 years of writing television there's one person who i thought was an all right guy who is a he ran a welsh production company we did an episode of fireman sam for him and he's a good guy um but like you just get used to kind of working with people who just seem horrible and um we used to go this is a really tawdry story but they used to pay you a certain amount just to turn up to kind of cast read-throughs of scripts that you had written. Even in children's television, they used to do this. And I bet they don't do it anymore. And um, I used to just turn up at the back and read Edge at, sitting at the back of the um, of the room. And then I, one day I saw this little... Um, there was an article in Edge going, oh, would you like to write for us? And I thought, oh, bloody, I would love to write for you. So I wrote an article on um, PN3. Do you know PN3? That's the Shinji Mikami GameCube. Yeah, that's right. God, yeah, no, good memory. It's it's the it's the only one of the Capcom Five that didn't get ported off the GameCube. That's right. Um, yeah. Obviously, other than Dead Phoenix, which didn't come out. Yeah, that but, was canned. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I love that it's called Dead Phoenix and it got canned. <laughs> but yeah, so I wrote, I, Edge used to have a, a feature in the back called Time Extend, um, and I, I wrote one on spec for PS. 
PN3 and sent it in just to say like, oh, yeah, I'd love to write for the mag. Here's something I've just knocked up. Um, and I really lucked in because at the time, and I don't think Edge would mind me saying this, at the time, it, time extends, no one used to, no one used to pitch them. So, and people on staff didn't like writing them that much. They were really a difficult article to write. Um, and so they were like, thank God, another time extends come in. And so um, they published it, and I've just been writing ever since. I wrote for Edge for a while. Um, and then um, when people I know from Edge went across to Eurogamer, I started writing for Eurogamer as well. And yeah, and then and, and, and I tell you, the, the amazing thing is, everyone in games, by and large, is lovely. And it was such a weird, that was so brilliant and weird after being in TV where everyone was so rotten. Um, moving into games where everyone was just an absolute delight. Uh, and and uh, yeah. Are was, we, Christian? Are we? Oh, no, everyone is. Everyone's lovely. They really are. Um, I've been in some horrible, horrible meetings when I was writing for television. Um, horrible people. Um, and I'm much, I'm much happier now. I found, I found my place in the world. It feels like. So let's get into your favorite game, Robotron 2084. Um, so. For those listening, it's worth knowing. This is the oldest game we have had on my favourite game in the two seasons <laughs> we've done this. The what oldest. Does, what does that say about about either about me or about your show? Hopefully it says something about your show rather than about me. Says, anyway, yeah. yeah, it says something about me, to be honest. <laughs> it says something about how young I am. Yes, absolutely. Well, you know, you well, know enjoy, it while, enjoy it while it's there, Johnny. Yeah, well, 1982 long time ago um, yes. so for those who weren't born in 1982 for those who were nine years late to the party um, what is the elevator pitch of Robotron give us the pitch uh, Robotron is I'm going to okay I'll give you the simplest pitch it, it is a it is the first proper twin stick shooter I think there was one twin stick game before it but it wasn't a twin stick shooter as you or I would recommend recognize it now which means you move with one joystick and you shoot in all directions with the other joystick. Um, and it's also, I would say, I think it's the purest action game ever made. And I think it still is the purest action game ever made. I don't think anything has happened in the past, what is it, like 23 years? Is it 23 years old? I don't think anything has happened in the last two decades to change it. I think it's still, it is still about as good as it gets in terms of running around and shooting things. When you say it's the purest action game, um, what do you mean by that? I mean, nothing gets in the way of... So, so arcade... Like, a, arcade games, you often... You go back to them and you have to put yourself in the mindset of, like, oh, this is what we accepted at that period. Actually, this is more true of computer games than arcade games. I don't know if you go back and play those old Commodore 64 games. You have to kind of go, oh, my God, we, we accepted games that were just really weird or that took, like, five minutes to get going or something like Raid Over Moscow where it takes you so long to get out of, the like, the hangar at the beginning of the game. Whereas Robotron, it spawns you in the middle of an empty playing area and then it fills that playing area with other enemies and they're all coming, to, coming at you or doing their own things, but they're all deadly. 
and you just you move and you shoot and that's it. It just doesn't get any better than that. There are reasons why Robotron is particularly brilliant, but I think we can come to those later on. But I think just that that movement on one stick, shooting on the other, and everything in the world having it in for you, I mm. think is why it's so it is so pure. Mm. Um. So it was more or less a uh, an arcade machine, anyways. So I don't, I don't think I need, I would need to ask about how you got into the game, anyways. But like, I'm going to ask you, anyways, how you got into the game beforehand. So I only discovered Robotron uh, about 15 years ago when I was reading <sighs> a book on game history, oh. and it mentioned it in there, and I was just like. That sounds like the craziest game ever. The history of Robotron is really quite cool as well. And I think it covered that in the book. And it had some quotes from Eugene Jarvis, who was one of the one of the two guys who made Robotron. And he just seemed like such a crazy guy. Um, a really wonderful character. And I, I just thought, I've got to play this game. And I remember looking for it on the internet, and I found a version of Robotron that was a, a single stick shooter. It was like a really terrible version of it in which you couldn't, you, you, you shot in the direction you moved in. Um, but even then it was enough. I was completely hooked. And then I finally, finally managed to play it on the Midway Arcades collection. But the real, the really special moment was when the XBLA version came out. It was such a great version of that game. That was the eye opener. Yeah, really was. Even though the, the 360 pad has the um this is really nerdy stuff but the 360 pad had the um thumbsticks at different heights mm. and that that is a murder for a game like Robotron mm. um but still I still I still you know I still managed to make the most of it and I've been to you know whenever I'm in the states and you know, there's an arcade nearby I go there and see if they have Robotron and I have I have played the actual machines a couple of times and um and like Popcap the developer Popcap mm had a Robotron cabinet in their in their break room, I remember, and play, playing that one was pretty fun. Um, so, yeah, I've played, you know, so I've over the last 15 years, it has pretty consistently been uh, my favourite game. I still play it every, every, every so often now. It's why I will have to keep a, an Xbox 360 in the house for the rest of time, um, basically. But, yes, it's, uh, yeah, so that, that I, 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 I was, I do not remember it from 1982 when I would have been, like, four um, I remember. I remember Defender from the eighties, which was the first game Eugene Jarvis made, the mm. first game. I remember that, but Defender is a little bit more famous than Robotron. I think Robotron is better than Defender. I feel it feels fair to say that Robotron is better than Defender, but I think Defender is probably a bit more famous. It's, it was noted that development on the game was a kind of athletic experience on both Eugene Jarvis and as well as um, I think Larry Demar. Um, what did they mean by that? Or An athletic that... experience. Yeah. Are you referring to the fact that Jarvis broke his hand? I am. Oh yeah. So this is amazing. This is like one of those things where you're like, God, if he hadn't, what if that hadn't happened? What what would have happened? So Jar- Eugene Jarvis was in a. So the thing, the important thing, I want to give a little bit of background. Eugene Jarvis um, was from a generation of designers and and, and engineers from before video games he didn't want to be a video game designer originally he wanted i'm pretty certain he wanted to be a pinball designer yes i wanted to ask you about that later on 
so yeah, he wanted to be a pinball designer, and he came to Williams, and they were shutting down the pinball um, system. And he ended up making their, I think, I think it's fair to say, Defender was their first big arcade game, and it was very expensive. It was developed in a factory, which is an old World War Two munitions factory or something like aircraft parts or something. And he and Larry DeMar were making it. Um, after Defender came out, it was incredibly expensive. They thought it was going to be a bomb, but it was a huge hit. And they could then do what they wanted. And what they really wanted to do was leave Williams. And they founded their own company called VidKids. And they made, um, they made the first game they made was Stargate, which was kind of a sequel to Defender. And then they made Robotron. Um, and they had their own office, which was in um, like the gay area of Chicago. He was saying, I remember him saying that like there would just be people going past to like uh, nightclubs the whole time and stuff like that when they were making this game. Eugene Jarvis was in a car accident when they were starting work on Robotron. He was in a car accident. He broke his hand and he needed a game system that he could. This is the, the myth. And I think there's some truth to it. Probably he needed a control system that he could use with his hand in a cast, but also Defender had the most complex control system in the world. You go left and right, smart bomb, normal shot, hyperspace. There's like a lot of buttons and joysticks. Mm. And he wanted something much simpler. So Robotron is literally just two, two joysticks. And the, the reason for that was partly because he wanted it to be simpler. He wanted to cut down all the buttons. He wanted to cut down on the kind of the complexity which kept people at a distance from Defender. But also, he wanted something where he could tape... I think he taped his cast to one of the joysticks and just played the game with these two joysticks. It felt really good. So the control system kind of came out of him breaking his hand, but I think also, undeniably, they knew what they wanted and they knew what they were doing as well. I don't think it was a happy accident as much as it was like a, a great story built around the fact that basically they were geniuses. <laughs> that's that's simplicity of that dual that dual uh stick shooter um you mentioned yourself um at the top um most games at the, in that era were um one stick shooter um like obviously like you said um you you weren't in the um robotron until around 15 years ago but like from uh that kind of perspective um how much of a jump was it like in terms of the gameplay side was going from one stick to that kind of dual stick. I think so. So that's really interesting. Like, so I gather that there are people who just cannot do dual stick stuff, mm. that there are people who just cannot get their heads around it. So no matter how much you, how much they try, it just never becomes natural to them. Um, I don't know whether that's still true because twin sticks had a bit of a resurgence in the last 10 years, but certainly at the time when I was starting to play Robotron and starting to talk to other people about it, they were all kind of going, Oh, I never could get my head around that game. So I think there is like a cognitive wall you have to get through, but I actually think the biggest thing that's incredible, the biggest leap forward, I think Jarvis's contribution to video games is really fucking precise in that in video games before him, the enemies tended to be in choreographed waves. Mm. 
Mm. So, you know, in like in in well, it's a very simple end of the scale in Space Invaders, they kind of go left and then they go right. And then they go left and they get lower and lower and lower. Or like Galaxian, they kind of zoom in and do these wonderful kind of cartwheels or they turn in little uh, sort of circles. But they're still choreographed. They're still following these invisible instructions. Whereas with um, Defender and with Robotron, he kind of gave his enemies' behaviours, which they would then enact in the field. So, like in Defender, the brilliant thing about Defender is all of those aliens who come in, you don't really know what they're going to do because they're making their own decisions based on their behaviour programming. They're not following a set path. And it's the same with Robotron. And the genius of Robotron is that there's a bunch of different enemy types and they all have different behaviours. So... um, the grunts all come directly for you and they don't shoot. Um, but because they're coming directly for you, it means they will end up bunched together in like a little bait ball. Um, the hulks, meanwhile, can't really find you at all, but you can't, can, you can never kill them. You can just knock them off of their paths. Um, and then, you know, you've got the spheroids and things like this. And these, these kind of make these long arcing kind of bishop-like moves across the board, which means they always get stuck in the corners. And then you've got the brains who are looking for the family that you're trying to collect. Everyone, every part of the ecology is trying to do something different. And within that, you get what is now a real buzzword. But back in the day, no one was talking about this. But this is what was so great about it. You get these emergent behaviors because there's all these systems working in the same space, but following different orders. And it's beautiful. It's like it's not just a um, an incredibly dynamic, exciting world to to play in it's actually like beautiful like the, the 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 they they move like bacteria you know you get these things like the 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 grunts in particular the way they flock across the screen feels really organic and like alive i always say there's like a wildness to a jarvis video game that you don't get from games where they have choreography mm. because you never actually know what's going to happen you never know specifically what's going to happen, but whenever anything does happen, it always it belongs to this set of rules which is entirely logical. So it's very pleasing. It's like it's wild. You feel like you're in the wilderness, but equally you feel like the animals around you are all behaving, obeying these laws that are there. It's really a, a beautiful, beautiful game. The two inspirations for Robotron, um, I want to get into that because, like... Um it was, um, there's one game that kind of influenced, or not influenced, but kind of helped um, inspire the game. Um, is that Berserk? It is Berserk, and the other one here is um, Chase. Oh yes, so I don't know as much about Chase, but Berserk, have you played Berserk? I have not played Berserk, no. Oh, Berserk is a super interesting, should I talk about Berserk a little bit, or am no, I going? please, please, by all means, go for it. Berserk is a super interesting game, made by a guy called Alan McNeil. Um, and I think it was made by Stern, Stern, who ne- who continue to make pinball machines to this day. Um, Alan McNeil, I interviewed him a long time ago. He is a crazy guy in a very positive way. But what was interesting about Berserk is that it was a maze game and the enemies would hunt you. And one of the things it stole from, uh, one of the things Robotron took from it was this idea of electrodes. Because the enemies in uh, Berserk could make mistakes and they could they could walk into things that would kill them. 
So it had fallible AI, which is brilliant. Like Alan McNeil is the is the other guy who was doing AI stuff like like Eugene Jarvis was. It wasn't just about, you know, creating these rows and ranks of things. It was about giving the AI giving the characters in the game a little bit of initiative to do their own thing. Berserk is a really unusual game. Berserk's mostly famous because it spoke to you. It had like a bunch of catchphrases it would say. Like it would say that it detected money in your pocket and that you should play the game or something like that. It was really... And it had this guy who turned up, a smiley face who turned up if you if you stayed in a level too long. Uh, so Berserk is a pretty sinister, a sinister game. Um not least in the, uh, I think it's apocryphal, but the first ever video game death is attributed to Berserk. Um, in that, like, there's there were stories at the time of two people who played it and then died either while playing it or right after playing it. Um, but I've I've looked into that and it's incredibly hard to track these people down. And it turns out that actually, tragically, there was a, a much earlier death, which is uh, awful, so awful. Like, you know, you don't want to think about it, but where a child brought pulled a an arcade cabinet down on top of them oh. and died, which is which is not nice to think about. But anyway, that's not on Berserk's conscience. Um, Chase, I don't know too much about. I have to admit, but Berserk was a definitely. He said before it's an influence, and it's an a, an unusual game. It's fun to play, knowing that it inspired this incredible masterpiece. So we touched upon it uh, just a few months ago, um, Eugene Jarvis and how he wanted to get in, wanted to make a start by making pinball games. Um, but talk, talking length about Eugene Jarvis, because he is, you know, basically one of your own heroes. It is, it's, yeah. bas- it's basically on your Eurogamer bio page. It is, yeah, he is one of our heroes, and in fact, I spoke to him recently, and I think, I think a slightly creepy thing where he knows I'm his, he's my hero, and like he's like, this kid is weird. Is he going to go nuts and kill me? And like, you know, you know that sense of like when someone's a bit too much of a fan. I think, I think there's a bit of that going on. I think he's aware that I'm a bit too fond of him, which is fine. Um, but yeah, so I think. I wonder. So, a he made these games. He made like a bunch of games that were just incredible. He was on such a hot streak for so long. There's a couple of things which are amazing about Eugene Jarvis. He made not just one game, but a bunch of brilliant games. You know, he made uh, not just like Defender, but Robotron as well. And he made Smash TV. And he made um, Narc. And he made all. He made like a bunch of hit games, which are all great. But also, he stayed with arcades the whole way. So, like, he is still making arcade machines today. And, in fact, arcades are having this bit of a a renaissance. And he's been there through the whole of their journey, which I think is incredible. Um, Also, he's just really funny. He's really funny and really brilliantly clever. Um, One of the most interesting people to interview. He's just got so many... He's so witty, and everything he says is could be like... He could be on television, this guy. Um, and I remember that, that the first time I interviewed him was for an Edge feature on NARC. And he said, like, oh, yeah, I've got 15 minutes to talk to you. And we spoke for, like, two hours. And he was just... I was crying with laughter at some of the things he was saying. And, um, yeah, he's, he's... But what's so interesting about looking back is I don't know if there were game designers before his, his generation, before people like him, because he was a code guy 
and a bit of an engineer and he became a game designer by dint of he was bringing all of these things together i don't i think he was one of the first generation of video game designers i don't think i think when he started out he probably would not have thought of himself as a video game designer but by the end of after he'd done some of his early great work, I think other people were starting to think of themselves as video game designers because of what he did. I think he, do you know, I think he's like a, 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 a f- there at the formation of this job in a way. The way he put it, it was almost as if he didn't, like obviously he, he, he wanted to make pinball machines, but the way you put it, it's almost as if he didn't intend to be a video game designer. He just wanted to... Yeah, of... I think that's true. I mean, when you talk to him about... I've spoken to him about his early gaming memories. And he can remember, like, he was at... Um, he can remember seeing, like, uh, Space War flickering on, you know, a PDP-1 and all that stuff. But I think that the real early memories for him of gaming were of, like, the pinball machines in slightly seedy um he was telling me about like a bar that was like the the it was called like the smoke shop or something it was like a bar where the local crime bosses would hang out it was that kind of place and they had all these pinball machines there and there was something so illicit about pinball if you're a kid in that era and i mean it's it's the cool thing i see it with my dad my dad grew up in the era where cars were amazingly cool and all of his childhood was spent thinking about cars and I think for Jarvis, it was probably technology and pinball and stuff like that. Um, and of course, you know, and it, of course, when he got to that stage where he could make these things, pinball was 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 dying off, and video games were starting up. So I don't think it was a sense of oh god, now I've got to make video games. But I think it was, you know, he would. I think he would have been pretty happy making pinball games. And but something even more amazing came along. It's it's fascinating when you put it like that. that- this kind of marvel of, of our of our time in games is still working on arcades because like you'd think he would kind of go with the tide and just work on a typical game like on a on a console or or on PC which we'll come to in a second because obviously um as as we record this they've just recently announced um yeah. collaboration with Housemark but like they kind of go back to the the topic at hand you would think that he would kind of have gone with the tide by now rather than you know as you say stick with the arcade with during this what is a renaissance yeah. I mean I can't I can't answer this for him at all but I I I can't answer this for him but it strikes me that if you are that he, I think there's something probably very exciting about working in arcade games because you can go and see them being played. You know, they they are these live things which live in the world in a way that video games don't. Also, I think he just really likes the industry. I get the impression he just really likes the arcade industry, and it's kind of like he is one of the kind of the grand figures of the arcade industry now. But I can't exp- I can't explain. All I can say is. Yeah, maybe other designers would have would have gone across, but the genius of him is that he's not other designers. He's this really, he's a very special uh, guy, I think, and I think it's 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 wonderful what he's been up to. Is there a certain sense of magic in building these arcade games that you don't really get building, say, a AAA or even indie console or PC game? I don't know. I think there's a certain like. So I talked to. I think there's more of a magic to. I think there's a whole magic to games that that we miss on our side, on the on the writing about them side. And I was talking to uh, Rodri Broadbent, who is the founder of Daco Daco and made Scram Kitty. 
and um, rotating octopus. He's really a great, great designer. And he was saying that, like, each of his games, he makes the engine for himself because why would you not make the engine? The engine and the game are part of the package. And the magic for him isn't just the game on the surface, but the engine which runs it. And I think there is a bit of that. I think it's a super interesting question. But I think there is a bit of that even when you you don't have bespoke hardware. I think the I think there is enough of the magic of games with in, in the tech side for it. It's just it, games are you know complex and wonderful, whatever form they're on. Um, let's touch on the um, the hash mark announcement. Um, as of recording this, um, last week it was announced in Helsinki that um, like I said at the time of recording this, um, that. Eugene Jarvis would be making a game in collaboration with uh, Housemark. Yes. Which is very exciting because, of course, we all know Housemark for Super Stardust and uh, Resogun. Yep. And Resogun is, quite frankly, fucking amazing, uh, as is Super Stardust, but more particularly Resogun. Um, and and you spoke to um, Jarvis in the aftermath of that for Eurogamer. Um, so, two, uh, a two-part question. Um, one... You you talked about it yourself. Um, this kind of renaissance in um, shoot 'em ups as of this past decade, because of course Housemark is leading it, not just with Superstars and, and but with Resogun, but you've also got games like Geometry Wars as well that, yeah. that that's made a big you know kind of landing. So, oh yeah, Def- um, yeah. So like two part question. Um, one, how. How have you seen this kind of renaissance? And um, two, I guess, would be how, how, how do you think Jarvis and Housemark's stars would mesh? Okay, so, so yeah, it's weird. It's funny you mentioned Geometry Wars because I think the arcade game, the idea, for a while in the, in the GameCube era and stuff like that, there was this sense that games were just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And one of the really great things about the 360 and about the last generation of consoles was like the arcade mentality, these downloadable games. You see it on PC. This has all been happening on PC independently, but like the idea of making smaller games that kind of that are just trying to do one thing really specifically. Um, and of course, with online leaderboards and everything like that, it just it made, pardon me, it just made such perfect sense for arcade, the arcade mentality to return. Um, and I think we've now we're now used to it. Like, there's no question that they, they you have you have you know your big boxed The Last of Us, and you also have Geometry Wars, and you probably end up spending more time playing Geometry Wars than you do playing The Last of Us or whatever you know. Um, so yeah, it's 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 great that it's come back, and it just feels very natural now. And it doesn't even it doesn't even feel like a distinction anymore. It just feels like there are games, and there are games, and you know it, it's. It's it's totally innate now. We don't really talk about arcade games as much anymore because everything is just a game now. It's fine. And that's wonderful. It's been great to see. Um, in terms of Housemark, I think what's really interesting is Housemark, even though you could say Super Stardust is them doing Robotron and Resogun is them doing Defender, and there's a, an awful lot of truth to that. Super Stardust is Robotron on a sphere and Resogun is defender with voxels but what is so different about why why I'm so excited about this is Housemark 
are just the geniuses of choreography. So that thing I was talking about, I was playing Resogun last night, and it is such a beautifully choreographed game. But what that does to it is it makes it a game which is about learning a pattern. And if you're playing Resogun on the highest difficulties and you're trying to get the scores, you have to be in the right position the whole time. It reminds me of the bit in Groundhog Day where he's robbing the armoured car. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, yeah, and he's yeah. going like, one, two, three, dog bark, wind blows, crossing the road. And that is Resogun. I mean, and I mean that in a, as, and it's wonderful because it's about learning this pattern and then learning to insinuate yourself into this kind of clockwork machine that's really going on. And of course, the moments where it all goes wrong and then, then you pull off something super cool to kind of get out of it, out of this situation you made for yourself. But it's going to be really interesting to see that kind of clockwork choreography. And I mean that in a really good way. I don't mean that in a bad way at all. Like their, their choreography is extraordinary. I think Resogun, the stuff it does with waves, is just incredible. But it's going to be really interesting to see that with Jarvis's kind of let's give the AI behaviours and let's let them kind of do it for themselves, it's going to be really fascinating to see those things meshing. And I, I talked to him about it and he said that he wanted to add a little more jazz, which I thought was just the most brilliant way of putting it. Um, like I was walking around work all yesterday on a bit of a high just because I had this phrase from him that just seemed so, so perfectly... Uh, so perfectly Jarvis um, and I think that's going to be really interesting to see the choreography and the chaos combine it's really have you seen the video of him playing the prototype uh, yes I have you can't see the game but you can see him playing it and A he looks pretty happy to be playing it also though not to be too CSI Miami detective work here or whatever <laughs> if you look at his hands it's a twin stick shooter of course uh, would that be powerful, of course, though? Well, I don't know. You know, there's more to Jarvis than that. It's still pretty exciting, though. I was, I was pretty excited. Like, yeah, that, like, that's a twin stick shooter. So that's great. Hmm. Um, which is like, I'm, I'm like, and this kind of harks back to what we were talking about earlier. I don't, I can't remember if we talked about it at the start of the show, but um, or if this was pre-show. But this um harks back to um. Our, our kind of age difference because like you said you're 36 I'm 24 and it comes yeah, that, at, and thanks I, Johnny thanks a lot <laughs> I'm all about making you old Chris I'm no sorry no, no the, sadly the world made me old I'm, <laughs> I was joking sorry um, what I was trying to say is it may even like at its core it is an obvious twin stick shooter but it brings together two different philosophies of both our generation. I mean, like, I know you said you got into Robotron 15 years ago, but it's still kind of a, um, a good point to make, because, like, on the one hand, you've got Jarvis and and what he brought to the table with Robotron, which I would perhaps say re- represents your your generation. And then... <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. No, no, it's funny, and it's, I'm quite... Yeah, no, it's probably true. And, and then... Yeah, and then on and then on my generation side, you have like Housemark with with um, Super Stardust with Resogun. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how how those two kind of mesh together. Yeah, I think it just it's also an indication that old that good good ideas don't get old. Mm. I think I'm interested. I've been wanting to ask you: Have you played Robotron? I've not, no. Ah, you should play it. I'd be interested. I'd love to hear what you thought about it. Mm. Sadly, the XBLA version has been delisted. I don't know who 
owns it anymore. I think Warner Brothers own it. This would be a good this would be a good uh a good investigative journalism piece for someone to write. Who owns Warner uh, who owns Robotron? Because it went from Williams to Midway and I think most of Midway's stuff went to Warner Brothers. Yeah. So like for example, Warner Brothers are toying with this thing of doing the vault where they get uh they get contemporary developers to have a go with some of their older licenses you saw that with gauntlet mm. um arrowhead the magicka people remade gauntlet recently gauntlet's an old williams an old midway machine um and i wonder i wonder if they they own robotron and if they're sitting on robotron and if they're going to let someone let someone make a new version of it that was pretty exciting basically similar to what the square enix collective is doing with some of their own IPs, like yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. I mean, I think it would be absolute sacrilege if anyone except Eugene Jarvis did it. I w- I interviewed him a while back, um, and he just said halfway through, "Oh, you know, I think about doing a Robotron sequel all the time." And I thought, "Oh, I'm glad you said that so gently because I think I'm about to have like an aneurysm based on." <laughs> Like, you can't just drop that in a conversation. Oh, yeah, I think about making another sequel to, like, the greatest game ever all the time. I think about doing it. Uh, What's a sequel to Robotron? Blaster is a sequel to Robotron. Vidkid's last game is a sequel to Robotron. It's actually set in 2085, which I always thought was cool. Mm. I actually wanted to touch upon that, uh, actually. Um, How there wasn't a such... and, And do correct me if I'm wrong, but, like... There wasn't as such a sequel for Robotron Twenty Four uh, planned, and it was like there was a Robotron tw- Two, and then it was canned, right? I don't know about that. Um, I know that Robotron itself once had this incredibly. It, was, it once had a much more ambitious structure. So you know, you'd go from between rooms, and there'd be it'd be a bit more like Smash TV. People often see Smash TV as being Robotron Two in a way, but at the time there was. I mean, Blaster is. It starts in 2085, and it picks up the story, essentially, where Robotron ends. It's a very different kind of game. Blaster's quite a weird game. Um, but, yeah, um, I think you could say that that Smash TV is kind of a, a spiritual successor to Robotron. To touch upon that, then, um, let, let's go in, in detail, then, about the other games that Jarvis has made, at least certainly those that are more known like you like there's obviously Defender there's obviously Stargate there's obviously Smash there's obviously Narc um but yeah just those <laughs> um as well as Robotron um I think what I'm saying is they've all left a massive legacy not just on games uh, as a whole but like to be niche Certainly, on the arcade level, I know. Yeah, I mean, I think he's. I think he's one of the most influential designers ever. Really, I, people. A, a good way to think of it, I think, is if Miyamoto is kind of the Spielberg of the games industry, which I don't really agree with, but it's kind of this handy shorthand for him. I think Jarvis is like the the John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. You know, you see, you see Smash TV where people are killing each other for toasters. Have you played Smash TV? I've not. I've, I've, no, actually, I tell a lie. I've played a bit of Smash TV. Smash TV is a pretty fun game, and the sequel to Smash TV, Total Carnage, is very politically incorrect. Probably a little bit racist, but is brilliant fun as well. 
um, and it, it, I should, I should, I should um, qualify that. I mean, it was, it, it was a, a, an artifact of the first Gulf War, so it's got a lot of quite uh, all uncomfortable jokes about about the Middle East in it, but. Yeah, it's it's more it's more of that stuff. But he's always had that kind of anarchic side to him, and the side. So one of his, I remember him talking about the film RoboCop. Hmm. Um, you know, the Verhoeven RoboCop film, and and it feels very much in that his sort of worldview is expressed in that film. The kind of comedy of tabloid awfulness, and you get that, and you get that kind of vividness in a lot of his games. You get it a little bit in Robotron. And you get it certainly in Smash TV and a little bit in Narc. You know, that sense of kind of um, society on the brink in a kind of entertaining, laughing while Rome burns kind of thing. Yeah, but he's he's an incredibly influential designer. Probably, um, you know, more so in in America. The problem is the reason why he's not, I think, the reason why to like the, the, the average person on the street who like maybe has a more healthy relationship with video games than any of us do. The reason why they might know Miyamoto and they might not know Jarvis is because he stayed with arcades. He didn't, he didn't come into the living room with consoles in the same way, but I think he is as important a figure as Miyamoto for sure. Um, and Kojima and all these other people. He is, he is, he's, he really put some some numbers on the board, as they say. And uh, this may be a bit of a silly question, considering you've effectively more or less just answered it. But like, if you had to compare Jarvis to a designer of today's standards, like what would they be? Like you mentioned Miyamoto and Kojima, but like, what of the designers well, the, from today? Don't you think the brilliant thing about like Miyamoto and Kojima is there is no one else like them? No. And, uh, can't really combine them to any you can't really compare sorry i'm losing the ability to speak you can't really compare those to anyone else Mm. and i think there's a handful of designers who are just originals and and who defy easy comparison i think miyamoto is one kojima is one um sakamoto nintendo is one and i think jarvis is 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 in there as well i think probably ed log as well if you're going back to the atari days you know the asteroids guy mm. edlog did some extraordinary game david crane you know there's a bunch of there's a bunch of 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 great designers who just sort of stand apart from everyone else i feel um i know we're going to come on to this but, uh, but i feel derek you the splunky guy is probably up there as well people who don't almost almost don't seem to fall into any tradition they kind of make a tradition rather than fit into one we've we've talked a lot about using jarvis but of course it's also worth noting that um larry demar yeah uh, yeah oh no absolutely i mean like the larry the vid kids was was the two of them um i don't want to i just everyone i've spoken to from the arcade games always goes jarvis is special like you know like there is and um i think when you see the two of them in conversation, I may have this completely wrong, but Jarvis always seems to be the one who is perhaps the driving force. I don't know. I don't know. I'm talking about something I don't know about. But yeah, it's it, it, it's you have to say you know it's, it's Demar gets such a hard time in history because Jarvis takes you know people just in all of the uh, all of the credit on Jarvis, myself included. Um, but yeah, defender. Larry DeMar was working on it, and Robotron was the two of them, and um, Blaster, and all of those things. Yeah. 
I've never met Larry DeMar. He's apparently doing uh, concepts, uh, games concepts for the casino industry. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the old arcade guys, I don't mean old, a lot of the arcade guys, it's a natural transition, right? Hmm. You know, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me at all. What else do you like about Rubotron that we've not touched upon tonight? Oh, I like everything about it, Johnny. Like, I think it's one of like, uh, it is like the best looking game it just looks incredible. It has this look which is so garishly, luridly video games. It has the best sound effects. This and Defender have just the best sound effects in games. They're so aggressive and weird. Um, I, lo- I, love, I love everything about this game. And it's, it's, it's hard, but it's not... It's, it's brutal, but if you are brutal, you can, you can do well at it. It's just... It's the complete... It's everything I want in a game, basically. <laughs> The complete Christian Donlan package. Yeah, it really is. It really is. I will never get. I will never get tired of this game. So this is going to be a hard question for you to answer. Now, uh, given that, what do you not like about it? Mm, what do I not like about it? Um, it's not. It's. It's. It is like saying, like, what do you not like about? It's just. It's. It's such a perfect artifact. No, that's not true. We both this know. Is nothing- there's nothing wrong with it. I can't think of anything I don't like about it. I wish I was better at it. There you go. <laughs> what I don't like about it is I'm I'm still crap at it after all these years. Are you serious? Because everyone has come on here and I, I could name you at least two things wrong with The Last of Us. Two. But I'm oh, not... I, no, yeah, no. But, but you've got to remember, like... No, I know, I know they're both entirely different games, but what I'm trying to say is, at least I can find fault with The Last of Us. It's not a perfect game. Nothing's perfect. Oh, that's the problem, is I think Robotron, I, I think it basically, I think it is perfect. It, it, I think, it's amazing, right? This is really, you will have read this in your research. In level, wave five of Robotron, there is this bug that, like, all of the enemies are just hunting after one of the one of the characters you have to collect, one of the human family. And there's this exploit in the in Wave Five, which completely changes the nature of the level. It makes it much easier to rack up a load of points if you do something amazing. And there's, so there's a bug in the game, and it just makes the game more brilliant. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that might have. Been a nope. bug that would have had to have crashed, or even something. the fucking bugs rule, Johnny. It's like it is that is that's it. It's just I'm not going to be able to find anything wrong with this game. And you could follow me around for the rest of my life and like tape all of my mutterings and everything I sort of mumble in my sleep, and I would never have a problem with this game because, like, it's a, it's it's a problem. This is a problem. Is that I am you know, meant to be covering the video game industry and I'm meant to be writing about video games. And yet I have like three or four games that I just absolutely adore and in certain ways do not think will ever be bettered. Like, and well, yeah, like what what are the other games done? Like besides Robotron and Deep Oh, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're, okay, I know, we, I know you want to talk, to talk about this at the end, but so like I really started to think recently, God, this is a problem in that I only, like, I obviously I play other games at work, and I still love, like, Grow Home recently. Have you played Grow Home yet? It's really... No, I haven't uh, yet, but I, I've been meaning to. I'm always finding games that I love and stuff like that, but I do keep returning to 
Spelunky and XCOM. <laughs> and I am thinking, part of me is thinking like, oh my God, am I like, am I stuck on these two games for the rest of my life? You know? And like, I keep mentioning it, it's, it's bad because you write about games and they keep becoming your, your go-to references for things. Like, I am temporarily banned from writing about Spelunky on Eurogamer. <laughs> because it just, it, it, and it, which is annoying because I have another article I want to write about it. But like, yeah, you know, I think I've, my problem is I find, like, you meet, maybe they're just better critics, better writers about games than I am. But like, people like Tom Francis who are able to take, Tom Francis, I think I should point out, is the best, I think the best video game writer ever. Um, and he's able to, like, even his favorite games, he can take them apart and work out what he doesn't like about them. And I think I'm stuck with just thinking there's, like, two or three games which I think are basically, essentially, perfect for me, if not for everyone. And, yeah, Robotron is definitely... Robotron is pretty hard to argue that it's not perfect. Wow. Um, I'm not backing down, basically, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't doubt you. <laughs> Anyway, yes, so yes. Robotron, Spelunky, XCOM, and what was the last game you said it would be perfect? Robotron, Spelunky, XCOM. Oh, God. I don't know. I think those are the ones which are... these. Those are the ones which are particularly special. I think WarioWare is probably in there. The first WarioWare. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, the minute I put the... I close the computer and walk away, I'll remember another bunch of games that I love. But, like... Yeah, Spelunky and XCOM particularly, I have a real um, a real problem with both of them. Just can't, I cannot stop playing them. I'm really excited for. Can I put a plug in for a game which isn't out yet? Go for it. I'm super excited for the Swindle by Dan Marshall. I think that game is going to. I don't think it'll ever replace Spelunky in my affections, but I think it's gonna also is gonna join. It could be, you know, another game I sort of hold in the same in the same. Uh, High esteem as Splunky, we shall see. Um, when, by the way, when you say XCOM, um, you mean Enemy uh, Unknown, right? Yeah, and Enemy Within. I'd like Enemy Within is really great, um, which is the expansion developed with under Ananda Gupta, who is another great, uh, uh, you know, another great designer. I've been meaning to try Enemy Within for a while because I really do love Enemy Unknown. Oh, Enemy Within is amazing. It'll blow your mind. Absolutely blow your mind. It's such a great game. I hope I hope I downloaded it on the. Um, I hope it was on PS Plus and I downloaded it because I can't play it on my PC anymore because my PC is foobarred when it comes to playing games. No, that's terrible. Um. So. Um. Yeah. Top three Jarvis-made games. It would be safe to say Robotron would be at the top, followed by Defenders. So what would follow that? I would probably put. Let me think. I want to get this right. I would probably put Smash TV in at three. I'm, I, I, yeah, Smash TV. Narc is great as well, but no, Smash. I would say yeah, Robotron Defender and and Smash probably. Honorable mentions. Go for it. Uh, so Spelunky, of course. Spelunky is like I think the other game I'd put up there with with Robotron in terms of just how. But what's weird is they're perfect in very similar ways, in that both of them drop you into a world where everything is driven by behaviors and the interaction of all these different behaviors. 
so they're always new they're always they're always um fair but everything always feels new you never quite know what you're going to see mm. um stranger's wrath oddworld stranger's wrath i think is an extraordinary game like the way people feel about the naughty dog games i feel about stranger's wrath in that it is a game with proper storytelling proper characterizations and a proper have you played stranger's wrath I've played um, bits of Just Add Water's HD version, yeah. Yeah, so it's great. It's, that, that is a great version as well. Um, Just Add Water did an amazing job on it. And they've done an amazing job with New and Tasty very recently. But like, what's incredible about those games is that they, they are telling a story which has a point. So Stranger's Wrath is really about... All of the Oddworld games are about injustice and about the oppression of the weak. And um, it's wonderful. Like you read, you you play them, and it makes you angry about injustice in the world. And you know, um, uh, and and Stranger is, I think, the high point of their storytelling. I think it's. I know I haven't played The Last of Us, and I'm I'm probably never going to play The Last of Us. But we we can't be friends anymore. I would be blown away if it has the. Uh, it, it would speak very highly for it if it had the the quality of storytelling that um, Stranger's Wrath has. It does stuff story wise which I've never seen in a game before, and it, it's so fiercely moral. It's got this real wonderful um, sense of like morality, anger, angry morality to it. It's a wonderful game. Hmm. Oh, and Drop Seven as well. Drop Seven, uh, the iOS and Android. Uh, smartphone game. Have you played Drop Seven? I've not played Drop Seven. No. Oh my god, Drop Seven is incredible. I am big. I was boring someone in the office about what a great game is today. It's up there with Luminaires and stuff like that for me. So yeah, let's touch upon back on one of those games because I really want to kind of pick your brain a little bit. Um, Spelunky. Um, it was actually because of um, Chris. I actually got into Spelunky. Him and uh, Tom Bramwell actually, because they wouldn't shut the fuck yeah, up no. about it. Basically, we have been very boring. Like normally, when you talk about a game, you go, "Oh, I bet I've sold a bunch of copies of that." No, I don't, because that would be an arrow. You know. Anyway, you you like to think that by talking about a game, you are encouraging other people to play it. But I think we got to the point with Spelunky where we're like, we're probably discouraging other people from playing it now because they just want us to fucking shut up about it. Um, do you like it though? I, I love I love Spelunky. Like it was in my top ten a couple of years ago when the PS3 version. Sorry, no, not the PS3 version. The uh, PC version came out. Yeah, PC version is amazing. Yeah, I mean, like when that came out, like I was basically obsessed with daily challenges. I still do the daily challenge every day. Seriously, come on. Yeah, I did the daily challenge this morning, and I did not get very far this morning. H- how far did you get? I definitely got into. I want to say I got into jungle, but I'm not sure if I did. Ooh, so that must have been at least. I've had a bunch yeah. of bad runs. Last yesterday, I think I set off the shopkeeper. I yesterday, I think I was pretty certain I was killed by the shopkeeper, but I think today I got a little bit further. But I certainly remember a, an accidental death and spikes today. It didn't go well. It really didn't go well. Um, does the PC version allow you to watch back um, specific players' challenges? No, no, that's 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 the the really annoying thing about Spelunky. So if I was talking about Spelunky in my favorite game, I could say this is not perfect. Is the Xbox 360 version doesn't have the daily challenge. The PC version has the daily challenge, but it doesn't have 
the ability to view other players' games. And the PS4 and Vita and PS3 version do have the ability to play other players' games, to view other players' games. But, like, who plays that game on on the PS3 or PS4? I think it's a PC game. I, you know? I, I play it on PS4. Uh, I think it, I think it belongs on PC. Hmm. I mean, admittedly, like I, I, it's not by choice because, like, like I said, my PC is kind of food when it comes to playing games. But yeah, I I, I play um on on the on PS4. In fact, matter of fact, um, I bought a PlayStation uh, TV recently, and when I say PlayStation TV, it's the small set top box that was released in Japan as PlayStation Vita TV. Oh yeah. And uh, I played a little bit of the um. The, the 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 Vita version, and um, how does how does Gravity Rush look on on a big TV? Oh, you can't play Gravity Rush. Or, or Why not? It, it it only supports some Vita games, not all of it. Not, uh, no sale, no sale. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame because I really would have loved this played Gravity Rush on the big screen, unless they bring it over to PS4 with the sequel. I know they should because I mean the PS4 is not. I love the PS. I love. I love Sony, but the PS4 is not drowning in brilliant first-party games at the moment. Mm. So Gravity Rush would be a nice, a nice addition. Mm. Um, and, and like they already announced the sequel, like is coming, but like we don't know which machine. We don't know if it's coming for Vita again or PS4. Yeah, we don't know anything about. It. We've seen that one trailer. Mm. Oh, me, <laughs> Sorry, I should also just add that my daughter loves Blunky. Um, she plays Blunky with me and uh, is is very fond of it. And she particularly likes the way the PlayStation controller glows a different colour depending on who you've selected to play with. Ah, I did not know that for some reason. No, uh, that's com- that, I like. Admittedly, I've I've not played the PS4 version too much. Oh well, have a look next time. Top three games ever. If I could safely say it. Robotron, Spelunky, and Oddworld, in that order, right? Yeah, you, it's so hard to say. I've never been good at this. I've never been good at making lists, because you always think, oh, wait a minute, I love that as well. And I think Impossible Mission would have to be in there. Like, I, I can't answer that. I can certainly say Robotron is number one, and Spelunky is probably uh, number two. So, But I can't, I can't say beyond that. I, I wouldn't want to say... Shit, hockey stuff. Oh, for fuck's sake, I keep forgetting you're not on Twitter anymore. No, I'm not on Twitter and I've never been happier. So I'll hawk that. I'll hawk that. Like, getting off Twitter has enriched my life immeasurably. Come back, Justin. <laughs> we miss you on Twitter. I, 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 you, you miss, you definitely, I miss individual people. I miss you a lot. I miss, um, I really miss Stace Harmon, actually, because he's not on Facebook. But um, but it's been it's nice not to have all of the world yelling at you all the time, which is what it sometimes feels like on Twitter. And leaving this episode on a sad note. Thanks for listening to my favourite game. Next week, the season finale, Mike Biffle on Metal Gear Solid 1. Until next week, bye bye.